the plan for me is always learning, find new opportunities and never limit yourself. I am always learning. I am always trying to find new opportunities. If you can say that you can do that, I think there's nothing to be scared of. And welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. What you heard there was the voice of youthful optimism, 20-year-old Panis from Bangkok. For most of the past 50 years, that optimism would have been well-founded. Any young person growing up in one of the fast-growing Asian economies could expect to end up comfortably better off than their parents. But it doesn't feel that way for those just entering the jobs market in 2020. The pandemic has hit job prospects for young people in Asia hardest of all. They're calling it the lockdown generation. And Bloomberg senior Asia economy correspondent Ender Curran is going to tell us all about them a little later. But this week, I also wanted to give you a sneak preview of some smart analysis we've been pulling together for Bloomberg's new economy forum, which will be entirely online this year, but starts on November 16th. All the Bloomberg economists have been put to work on this. Later on, we'll hear Eurozone economist Maeva Cousin tell us about a project she's done looking at how climate change could affect the global economy under different scenarios. But first, our chief economist, Tom Orlick, great friend of the podcast, is here to give us an overview of this special report. Tom, I've got the report in my hands, hot off the presses. It's going to be available on the Bloomberg New Economy Forum website any minute now, which is a rare treat for those of you who don't usually get to see Bloomberg's economic research. There's so much here, but I wanted to focus, Tom, on your projections for what the world could look like in 2050. You're a brave man looking that far ahead. But if you step back with that kind of long term view, I guess you can get to the nub of the big forces driving the global economy. What different scenarios did you think about? Well, Stephanie, let's keep in mind that I just published a book called China, the bubble that never pops. So uh, clearly you're talking to someone who's um, who's not afraid of leaving hostages to fortune. So we're looking out to the world in 2050. um, And clearly there's a huge amount that could change between now and then. And we're seeing in in 2020 how a pandemic can shape the um, trajectory for major economies. Um, But what we've done is we've used a growth accounting framework. So we've looked at how demographics is going to change. We've looked at the likely pathway for capital spending uh, and for productivity growth. Um, And by doing that, we've put together baseline forecasts for GDP growth out over the next three decades. And then we've layered on top of those scenarios for some of the mega trends, globalization, climate change, and how they could shape the outlook. So one of the one of the pieces you did, I guess it's a familiar story in a sense, the shift in economic power uh, from West to East that we expect to see happen in that time. And the, the, but the numbers are quite significant. Yeah. So For the last 70 years, there's been a period of really remarkable stability uh, in the sort of the economic balance of power. We've had the US and Europe firmly in the driving seat, um, and the intellectual consensus has been centred around the benefits of free markets uh, and the power of democracies uh, to drive economic dynamism. Um, Now, in the last 15, 20 years, Uh, we've seen the beginning of a transition. China is rising. 
India are coming up behind them. Um, so what our forecasts show is that this is really just the beginning of the transition. And in the next 30 years, we're going to see China, India, other Asian emerging markets like Indonesia rising up the global rankings. By the time we get to 2050, China will firmly be in the number one spot. India, we think, will be number three and closing the gap uh, with the United States. Uh, and Indonesia could well be up in the big league as well. Um, now, as that happens, it's not just a geographical shift, right? It's not just a shift from west to east. It's also a shift from advanced economies to emerging markets. And it's a shift from economies which operate on a free market principle to economies like China and in a different way, India, that have a much higher degree of state intervention. And that's actually, that is a very, very striking. So, so what would, what's the numbers there in terms of the uh, share of the global economy that's, if you like, in democratic hands versus non-democratic? And how does that change? Um, so, um, so, so what we've done is we've interacted our forecasts um, with the classifications of different societies by Freedom House. Uh, and Freedom House classify societies into free, so that's kind of a functioning democracy, partly free, so that's a society which has some democratic um, uh, aspects, but you wouldn't characterize it as a fully functioning economy, um, and not free, so that's single party states. Um, and, and so when we interact our forecasts with those social classifications, what we see is that the share of the global economy, um, which, is con which is controlled by free democracies, is going to shrink from around 86% in 2000 to around 60% um, in 2050. Uh, and the share which is controlled by partly free and not free societies is going to rise all the way up from about 14% to about 40%. So a huge shift in the sort of the geographical composition of the global economy, the sort of the share of the global economy that's classified as free market versus state interventionist, but also that political shift as well. A much larger share of global output is going to be coming from non-democratic states. And you've spent a lot of time in, in China. I mean, it is quite, I wonder whether you think that the way that China has responded to the COVID threat could make even these projections turn out to be an underestimate of China's what, what China's standing is going to be in a few years' time. I mean, many people think they have vaulted several years ahead of the of the West by being able to manage this crisis so effectively at a time when particularly the US and, and Britain was really floundering. Right. So, so one of the things that could throw these projections off are a major crises, right? Um, and uh, a lot of people look at China and they think there's a big financial crisis coming down the road because China's taken on so much debt. Uh, and if that happens, clearly it would put a dent in, in China's growth trajectory. Um, what we've seen in 2020, though, as you know, is this global pandemic, catastrophic impact uh, across major economies, um, but China has really come out of it first and come out of it fastest. So our forecast is for 2% growth in China this year. We think they'll come back to 8% growth next year. No other major economy is going to do so well. So ironically, even though the COVID crisis started in China, 
when we come out of it, it could well be that China has accelerated that process of narrowing the gap with the United States. Now, one view of at least part of what the Trump administration has been doing the last few years, and we've reported so much on this podcast, is is to, he was trying to fight the kind of arithmetic and dynamic that you've just outlined. He's trying to make sure that the US didn't fall behind in terms of its share of global economy in quite the same way that you've described. I mean, is there anything that the so-called West, the US and Western Europe, can do to change the outcome in 2050 in a sort of serious way? Yeah, so there's there's a phrase which you often see in Chinese policy documents, ban hao zi de shi. Um, it roughly translates as do your own work well, right? <laughs> the last four years have really been a period where the US has focused on attacking China, right? Let's put tariffs up. Let's make it harder to sell technologies to China. Let's try and break up big Chinese internet companies. Um, there hasn't been a lot of investment in US education, a lot of investment in US infrastructure, a lot of investment in US research and development. Now, if the US wants to do its own work well uh, and accelerate growth at home, then uh, I think a sort of a smart strategy would be to continue that advocacy for sort of a level playing field, free markets globally, but also make those investments which drive growth potential at home as well. It's almost a shame that we haven't got President Trump uh, doing his next summit with the Chinese leader to be told, do your own work well. I think that would go down extremely well. We should just touch on the uh, other piece of this research, which was looking at the impact over a 30-year time frame of a month of less globalization or indeed a reversal of globalization. There's been so much talk about that in the wake of the both Donald Trump's trade policies, but also the, the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, what, what did you find there and what were you looking at? So um, it's not just US-China relations which are breaking down, right? Um, we have Brexit, the UK stepping away from its trade relationship with the European Union. Um, we have COVID-era concern about control of supply chains, um, countries which in the first half of this year could make their own masks and make their own antibiotics and make their own ventilators were in a better position that countries than countries which were sourcing those from overseas. So there's a kind of, there's a global trend towards um, deglobalization. That is um, potentially a very serious problem for global growth. A world where global trade and technology and financial ties start to splinter um, is going to be a smaller world than a world where they continue to strengthen. Um, and it also has distributional consequences. Globalization is good for all countries, but it's especially good for emerging markets which are aiming to export their way to prosperity and catch up rapidly to the global technology frontier. Um, so we explored a couple of scenarios, one where global ties continue to strengthen and one where global ties splinter back to the level in 2000, just before um, China joined the WTO, just as Europe was creating uh, its single currency. Um, the consequences of that, for the, cons the difference between those two scenarios for global growth is really enormous. Um, the negative impact of deglobalization is much more severe for those emerging markets, places like China, places like Vietnam. And I was going to ask you that. So who are the, the biggest losers 
are those countries, I guess, who would have otherwise have done the best on the integration scenario. Yeah, it's the it's your it's your Asian it's the Asian emerging markets. It's China. It's Vietnam. Uh, a bit further up the development spectrum, it's Korea. It's the countries that have done the best from gaining global export market share and absorbing foreign technologies. They're the biggest winners from globalization. They'd be the biggest losers if globalization now spins into reverse. Tom Wallach, thank you very much. Great to be here, Stephanie. Well, we're not assuming that globalisation will go into reverse, but the COVID crisis has given young people in Asia a taste of a world in which all the economic opportunities have suddenly dried up. They're calling it the lockdown generation. Bloomberg's Enda Curran has more. Here in Hong Kong, while the pandemic is under control, the economy remains in recession. Unemployment is at a 15-year high, and youth unemployment has surged during the crisis. Of course, the story of youth unemployment is playing out across the Asia region, a part of the world that is home to a majority of those aged 15 to 24. It's why the Asian Development Bank and International Labour Organization are warning of a lockdown generation. We reached out to young people and experts across the region to gauge how deep this jobs crisis is. Vincent Lau, aged 20, is among those in Hong Kong who's unemployed and looking for work, in his case, possibly as a waiter. It's really hard to find a job right now. When pandemic comes in, a lot of, a lot of companies start to firing the employee, and I'm kind of afraid about not getting a job because I don't think they're going to hire too much people. Yeah, I'm not expecting to get a job very soon. I spoke with Felix Weidenkaff of the International Labour Organization, who is based in Bangkok. So the COVID-19 pandemic has led to a, a massive disruption to the economies and, and labour markets in, in Asia-Pacific. And we found that they have disproportionate impacts on, on youth employment, now threatening to create a, a lockdown generation. The region's fast-growing economies for decades have offered millions of young people the chance to do better than their parents a path to upward mobility now at risk as youth unemployment soars. Young people are losing jobs at a faster rate than older generations because almost half are clustered in the four economic sectors hurt most by the COVID-19 pandemic. Wholesale and retail, manufacturing, business services and accommodation and food. Young women and the poorest are hardest hit. And there are several underlying factors why youth in Asia-Pacific are particularly vulnerable. Asia and the Pacific region is home to the majority of the world's young people aged 15 to 24. And as such, their contribution is, is key to the region's productivity and also in inclusive development. Panas Umprapan is a 20-year-old from Bangkok who wanted to turn his love of aviation into a career by studying aerospace engineering. Those plans are now far from certain after COVID halted much of global air travel. The, the pandemic just like changed everything that I have thought about my career. Because aviation was supposed to be one of those industries that was growing substantially before COVID. And I thought that Thailand is kind of like the central hub of Asia. So I figured it might be good if I pursue this career path. While Panas is hopeful that the aviation sector eventually gets back in the air, 
He's also looking at his options. If aviation was not possible, I have also considered other fields of engineering, like the energy field, which I already sent some uh, applications to. So this is my alternative plan right now. The impact goes beyond headline rates of unemployment. Professor Weijun Jin Yung, founding director of the Center for Family and Population Research at the National University of Singapore, warns that this crisis will strain relations with older generations. It puts young people's mental health at risk and is shaping up to be worse than previous jobs crises. And it's not just youth unemployment. There's the underemployment. People who cannot find jobs settle for something less well-paid and work fewer hours. There's also people who got discouraged of looking for jobs that becomes idled. So there are various ways that uh, this pandemic is making the impact of economic recession much worse than young people uh, you know, in a way that's much worse than any other uh, age groups. She highlights the impact on younger women, especially, who are forced into unpaid labor at home as they fall out of the workforce. You know, on women, this is particularly hard. Uh, many of them would just become uh, someone in the statistics that are not in employment, education, or training uh, because of the labor market, but also because of unpaid work demand at home. Even in China, where the economic recovery is most advanced, the government has warned that the jobless rate among young workers remains high. In Japan, companies are cutting back on hiring and new graduates are losing their chance for long-term employment. Zhu Yue recently completed her internship at a big tech company in Beijing and is now in Japan, where she plans to finish her postgraduate studies. She's hoping for a job in media or digital content at some of China's technology giants, but she's already noticed that there are fewer roles on offer. When she first graduated in 2018, jobs were plentiful. Compared with right now, I think the competition is much fiercer than before because there are so many graduates who should have found a job in 2020 but didn't. Before the start of my job hunting, I plan to apply for some positions in some internet companies. Uh, this year, I found that uh, this kind of job is uh, not available anymore. The COVID-19 shock is creating a class of new poor across East Asia and the Pacific. According to the World Bank, 38 million more people will be living in poverty in 2020. To counter long-term scouring, Weidenkamp at the ILO says governments need to pour money into education and skills training. The pathways that a lot of young people might have taken when in Asia-Pacific when they entered the labor market, that is now being disrupted because that used to be in sectors that are now most Im um impacted, such as the wholesale and retail trade and ma manufacturing. Governments need to adopt and, and implement immediate large-scale and, and targeted measures to stimulate economy and, and youth employment. Essentially, that has to do with the fact that it is now critical to prioritize youth employment if, if you want the region to come out with more inclusive and sustainable growth. And the concern we have at this stage is that 
this will have long-lasting impacts and the current crisis on the labor market outcomes of youth in the region. We know from um, the previous financial crisis in Asia and the Pacific that the youth unemployment rate never recovered to pre-global financial crisis level of, uh, of 2007. What is different now is the crisis due to COVID-19 is much more widespread on both the labor demand and supply side. When I interviewed young people for this podcast, I was struck by their optimism that this crisis will pass eventually. Many, like Pan Azumpapan, say that they want to be ready to embrace whatever opportunities comes along. It's a hopeful note in an uncertain time. The plan for me is always learning, find new opportunities and never limit yourself. Maybe the plan I thought about the energy, like renewable energy might not work for the next month, next years, whatever. But I am always learning. I am always trying to find new opportunities. If you can say that you can do that, I think there's nothing to be scared of. For Bloomberg News, I'm Enda Curran. I mentioned that our Eurozone economist, Maeva Cousin, who's been on the podcast a few times, had contributed a climate piece to this special New Economy Forum report. She worked with the chief EMEA economist, Jamie Rush, on this project. But Maeva, tell me briefly what you did and some of the broad brush conclusions. Yes, thanks. So we've looked at the cost of climate change, not just the physical cost of climate change, but also the cost of transitioning to a low-carbon economy to avoid those physical costs from climate change. And so we've used the scenarios developed by the, by the, the NGFS, the network of central banks for greening the financial sector. And we've focused on three main scenarios. One is a do-nothing scenario. It's a hot planet scenario. It's a case where um, policies simply continue as they are now, no more. And that would mean having temperature rising to about probably two degrees above pre-industrial uh, times by 2050 and four degrees by 2100. And then there are two transition scenarios along the lines of the Paris Agreement, so to cap temperature at, at two degrees Celsius. Um, and that would one orderly scenario that starts now and is gradual and gives time for the technology to mature, and one disorderly scenario, which is delayed until 2030. And then we uh, looked at the um, different trajectories for different countries, which um, allowed us to um, estimate the costs for various countries rather than just globally. There's lots here, and it's hard to go into the into the details because then there'll be lots of people nitpicking at it. I did notice one big thing, which is obviously also quite worrying when you think about the political economy of this, is some of the biggest economies, the ones that we look to now and we know are going to be really important for this effort, are ones that will not benefit from the mitigation efforts for quite a long time. So you've got them having to spend quite a lot of money or at least sacrifice a certain amount of growth for some period before they get to see the benefits of that of that cooler planet. Yes, that's right. I mean, the problem is that the cost of climate change, the physical cost, the chronic cost from hotter temperatures are, um, are quite slow moving and it's difficult to disentangle them, to really notice them. And they become more and more important. But according to these scenarios, 
they did already cost us about 1% of GDP as of today. So if the world was not so hot already, we would be maybe a 1% higher GDP. And then by 2050, they estimate around 3% extra, 2% extra cost, so a cost of 3% in total. And then 10% by 20, 2100. But these are central costs, these are chronic costs. There are, of course, a lot of uncertainty. It could be, um, in, the, in these estimates, they go up to maybe 25% cost by 2100. So there's this big uncertainty on the cost of climate change and the fact that they are gradually increasing and maybe there will be a tipping point where they start increasing even faster. The cost of transition are, um, are more um, front-loaded. So a lot of the transition costs would happen at the start of the transition. Even in the orderly transition, they would be around 2% by 2050 estimated, and then they would go up to maybe 3 4% by 2100. So they are very much front-loaded. And what happens is that the focus being on the next 30 years, it looks cheaper globally to do nothing than to start the transition. But of course, by 2100. And so it means that globally, it, the, the break-even, where it becomes uh, more expensive, more cheaper to do something than do nothing, is around 2069, which is already quite late in terms of global GDP today. But then if you, if you look at the US or the EU, it's more like 2090, 2100. Um, so with short for short-sighted policymakers, and you don't have to be, I mean, even quite long-sighted ones, <laughs> we are talking about 70 years ahead. And that's that's a big challenge. If there was a central planner, we would probably, uh, I think we would have started quite a long time ago, actually. Uh, but um, but in those current circumstances, the coordination is a, is a key challenge. But to be clear, it's not saying that it would, that it only makes sense to do something in 2070. It's just that it won't be, it won't be evident. You won't be able to say right now that the costs are less than the benefits until yes. 2070. The final thing I noticed in this uh, research, Maver, which I think would worry some incoming members of the Biden administration who have put the climate you know, high on there, they've named it as one of their four priorities, is that you, you show that if the, the more aggressive the US is in embracing the climate agenda the quicker it will be before China overtakes the US. So it sounds like Donald Trump was right. So in a way, that's right, because the more disruptive costs of climate change or the disruptive costs of a disorderly transition will be felt more in some parts of the world and less generally in advanced economies, either because they are less reliant on fossil fuels or they have better capacities of adjusting. Um, China has quite a lot of... Um, very, like a lot of the productivity is in very urban areas where uh, the cost of climate change from floods, from very heavy rain in particular, could be quite high. So that makes them quite sensitive. Uh, the estimates we have at the moment is 4% cost by 2050 for, for, for China, where it's less than, I think it's probably less than 1% for the US and most advanced economies. So that's right that um, the generally emerging economies would benefit more. Uh, from from, a from, from America's efforts, I mean, from, from yeah, from <laughs> everybody's effort to 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 move um, to an orderly transition. That's right. Well, much to think about, and let's hope that uh, the incoming Biden administration don't focus too much on those long-term scenarios. You get the impression that they're trying to look, they're looking past those kind of narrow uh, assessments, at least for now. 
Mabel Cousin, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, where I'll be discussing, among other things, the future of central banking with a blockbuster panel of Larry Summers, Janet Yellen, Raghuram Rajan and Lord Mervyn King. In the meantime, remember you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Ender Curran, Maeva Cousin and Tom Orlick. Lucy Meakin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy.